So I, I, I have an opinion. I have a, a thought that I want to share this morning. I believe that, that all over the world today, there is, there is a tragedy that, that has the opportunity to be happening. And I think, I think that it, it happens more often than we want it to happen. Uh, one of the greatest tragedies that occurs in churches all over the world today is that people like me stand in stages like this, stand behind pulpits of all different sizes and shapes. They stand in front of congregations like ours and ones that maybe don't look like ours does. But the tragedy is, is that we talk about things that don't matter. Things that don't matter. And by that, I mean when we talk about the Bible, when we teach from God's word, when we talk about who Jesus is, who God is, sometimes the tragedy is, is that we talk about that like like that great big story doesn't have anything to do with your story or with my story. And that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy because the great big story of God has everything to do with your story and my story. We are part of the story, part of the big story. This isn't stuff that happened a very long time ago and now we just talk about it. We are part of a greater story. And God is writing the next chapter, the next book, the next great epic drama of the faith with your life. With your life. He's writing fresh books. He's writing, you know, the book of Lisa and the book of David and the book of Dylan and there's like, I don't know, there's like four or five Johns in the room. And so there, there's four or five books in the Bible that are already called John. But he's writing new ones for you guys. He's writing new ones for you guys. Make no mistake. God is writing a story with your life. It may never end up canonized. It might not end up, you know, part of the particular collection of books that people decided, church fathers long ago, that this was representative of the Christian faith. It might not end up canonized, but it is important. It is part of the whole story of God. And so I just want to encourage you as we're talking through this ancient story today to think about how the themes that are evident in this story really do have relevance for the adventure that is fresh and new that God is taking you in particular, you, each person in each seat on in your life and writing your story. Okay. One of the beautiful things about being part of Christian community, one of my favorite things, is that because of a shared love for Jesus, um, God brings together in one place around that love for Jesus into our lives people that are people that are different. And when I say different, I mean people that are different from us. You know, when we go out to socialize or we, we join clubs or we do sports or we, you know, we, we kind of tend to group together with people that are like us. Um, you know, I'm an introvert and so I don't like to go to a lot of concerts and things like that because there's like people all around. So, you know, I don't hang out with a lot of people who go to concerts. We, we tend to group together in, with people that are the same as us. But as Christians, our love for Jesus brings us together even though we're very different. Okay. And one, one of the, the things that is true about me is, um, for instance, when I'm going to watch a movie. I have a particular movie genre that I appreciate that's like my favorite. Um, my, my very, very favorite is like epic drama. Think like uh, Lord of the Rings or something like that. Just a sweeping epic drama. And I also like a little bit of sarcastic comedy. Okay? 
Now, my husband loves a good action flick, and so if we're left to our own devices, it's usually one of those three things that will, you know, that is, that's our go-to thing at the theater or if we're watching Netflix or something like that, those three genres. But through the beauty of Christian community, I actually have several friends, and they seem like really normal people, and so I really appreciate them, um, but I have several friends that really like musicals. That's not, you know, it's not my, not my go-to thing, but over the years of being in relationship with these people, I have learned to appreciate a good musical. And one of the things that I learned through that experience of, of being friends with people who appreciate a good musical is that one of the components to a good musical is what some might refer to as the grand finale, right? At the end, there's like this big musical number, this sweeping just amazing production at the end of a musical. Is that true? You guys know what I'm talking about? Every story needs a good ending. Every story needs a good ending, and Nehemiah is no exception. So as we're wrapping up our summer sermon series on Nehemiah, we're going to finish by looking at... Now, I am not kidding. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. We're going to finish by looking at a big, sweeping musical number, a grand finale that would rival anything you would see on Broadway. In fact, I think it's kind of a shame that no one has picked up on this story and adapted it for stage or screen, the big closing number. But first, though, we're going to go through the highlight reel of the story we've been working our way through all summer, just so we make sure everybody's caught up. I'm going to go through the highlight reel real quick. Ha, ha, ha. All right, when the story opened in Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem had been in ruin for nearly 150 years following a brutal military conquest that had left the city leveled and it left the Israelites as captives to a foreign government. Um, Nehemiah, the uh, kind of protagonist of our story, he was a trusted servant and advisor to the king of Persia in captivity in a foreign land. And it was through that relationship which he served faithfully that he was given the permission and he was given the resources that he need, needed to take on the project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the walls were important because not only did they serve as protection in that ancient culture, but they also were a symbol of Israel's identity as a people and who they were as the chosen people of God. Nehemiah was successful. He gathered a large group of people together. He organized this huge engineering project, even though there was quite a bit of opposition. As the opposition ramped up, so did Nehemiah's resolve. And so they completed this huge project in 52 days. They celebrated. They credited all the people with their work. And they gathered together to realign themselves with God's law to realign themselves with God's law. And so finally, now, we come to the place where the Israelites are ready for the grand finale. The grand finale, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. The, the appreciation, the, the dedicating back to God, this symbol of their identity as God's chosen people and a symbol of them being in right relationship with them. So we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 12 starting in verse 27. Feel free to use an electronic device if that's what you have. You can grab a Bible out of the windowsill or just follow along with the text that's going to be on the screen behind me. Nehemiah chapter 12, starting in verse 27. 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nedophathites. Does that sound pretty good? Pretty good. From Beth Gilgal and the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And now here's where the stuff from the musical comes in. This is the musical part. This is Nehemiah talking. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. That was all, all a whole bunch of people. Then I'm not going to read the list of their names. All these people as well as some priests and trumpets, and also all these other people too. And then if we skip down to verse 37, at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall, and they passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. Now verse 38 says, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people. So can you picture what's happening here? Like there's hundreds of people, hundreds of singers, hundreds of musicians. And Nehemiah is like directing this this group of people to, to up the stairs. And you line up here and you line up here. And okay, all of you go that way. And now you go this way. And he's just, he's just choreographing this amazing scene Verse 40 says, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, and so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests with their trumpets. And the choirs sang under the direction of Jezariah. He was the conductor. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. What what an incredible scene. If you can just engage your imagination and picture what is happening here, the drama and the, the pageantry of the whole thing. So apparently, you know, engineering wasn't the only thing that Nehemiah had a flair for. He had some had some uh, theater classes, I guess, and for his electives, but did a fantastic job. Hundreds of singers, hundreds of, of, of musicians. Play your instruments, blow your trumpets, sing your songs, give thanks to your God who has done this amazing thing for you. Make it loud, make it expressive, make it exuberant. Let's really put on a display here. Because the Israelites had gathered for this purpose. They gathered in Jerusalem to joyfully celebrate the dedication of the wall. And so what came out of that joyful celebration was was worship. Worship is what came out of that joyful celebration. Thanksgiving and praise to our God who helped us build this wall. 
thanks to our God who is restoring us as a people. Can you, can you see, can we see the application for this in our own lives? What has God rebuilt for you? What has he done? What, what was broken that he redeemed and he restored? So what is your response to his activity in your life? What is mine? How do we respond to that? How do we show him our thankfulness? How do we demonstrate that? So joyful worship is a natural response to the activity of God on our behalf. Furthermore, out of that joyful celebration of dedication came witness. Witness. Did you notice in verse 43 that it said, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Could be heard far away. When you live a life that is joyfully dedicated to God and it's marked by a lifestyle of thankful worship, worship for who he is and for what he's done for you, the people around you are going to notice. People are going to notice. But it's important to note something here. The Israelites did not set out with the intention of putting on a show for the neighboring people. They didn't set out to make this display for those others who happened to hear. Are you catching what I'm saying? Are you catching, catching what I'm getting at here? This was not a manipulative display of piety. It was not. The fact that other people noticed, that was a side effect of genuine, authentic, sincere, loving response to God. If we get this backwards, if you and I get this backwards, we can come off like used car salesmen with a fake smile plastered to our face as we try to sell people around us the lie that following Jesus fixes everything. You guys know that, right? You know that. We, we tell the truth around here, so let's all just say it out loud. Following Jesus does not fix everything. Does not. In fact, in my opinion, it makes quite a few things harder after all, he did call us to come and die, did he not? To die to our old life with all of its comfortable and familiar and convenient ways of living. One of the things that I say sometimes is I miss, I miss the convenience of lying. Like, isn't it nice like, to, to be able to do that sometimes? Just not tell the truth? Gosh, it's hard. It's hard to tell the truth sometimes. But as a follower of Jesus, I'm committed to aligning myself with his expectations for me. And one of those things is that I would not, I would not bear false witness. I would, not, I would not live in a way that is not authentic. And so sometimes that makes life harder. Following Jesus doesn't fix everything. And that's true for the Israelites as well. Do not forget, God had done this amazing thing. He had, he had helped them 
to get to the place where they were, but they were still not free people. They were still subject to the Persian government. They weren't completely delivered at this point, and yet that did not stop them from celebrating everything that God had done, that he had done. And at the end of the day, that is all that you and I need to do, all is just acknowledge what God has done in our lives. That's what a good witness does. They just tell what they saw. That's what a witness does. We would never say in a court of law situation that a good witness is one who embellishes or speculates. There's no need for that. As we live a life of joyful dedication to God, we're naturally going to respond to his activity in our lives with worship. And that authentic, authentic worship, even though it's directed and intended for God alone, it's going to have the side effect of bearing witness to those that are around us. And finally, as the Israelites gathered to dedicate the wall, out of that joyful celebration of dedication came a willingness. A willingness. So the rest of the chapter, which I'm not going to read, I'll just summarize. But verses 44 through 47, they describe the process of the Israelites reestablishing a practice that was prescribed for them in the Mosaic law. And that was a practice of the, um, the people sharing a portion of what they produced agriculturally, uh, farmers and, and, and you know, people that had livestock and stuff, they, they shared a portion of their agricultural product with the priests and the Levites. And the reason that they did this is that that provision is what allowed the priests and the Levites the freedom to care for the temple and serve and, and perform all the duties that were required under the law for the religious rituals and worship. Um, that wouldn't have been possible for them to operate that and maintain it and, and perform all of those things if, if other people who could be working all the time on other things didn't share with them. And that was something that was commanded in the law that Moses brought down from, from Mount Sinai. But like so many other things, it was a practice that had fallen by the wayside when the Israelites had fallen away from God during their time of rebellion and during the subsequent captivity. So they'd stopped doing this thing. But now that they were in right relationship with God, they, there was a willingness there for them to, to realign their lives, to, to adhere to the guidelines that God had handed out, a willingness. But another notable observation here, when did God's intervention happen? When did God's intervention happen? Like in, rela in relation to this obedience and this willingness, when did God's intervention happen? I mean, it's not, it's not a trick question. Before or after their obedience to the law, did God intervene on their behalf? It was before. It was before. Our willingness to align our lives with God's expectation is no less a response, a response, than was the worship or the witness. We don't earn God's love with our obedience. Our obedience is a response to his love. 
And it's a result of the trust that we develop through relationship with him as he shows himself to be a trustworthy and faithful God. It's a response. You might want to write this down. We don't earn it. He gives it. We respond. Doesn't matter what it is, his love, his, his presence, his pers- pursuit. We don't earn it. He gives it. And you and I respond to that. As we let his love permeate every area of our heart and life, we experience a transformation and a dedication to him that we, like the Israelites, we can't help but celebrate that joyfully. That's the natural response that comes out of that love relationship. And the worship that develops out of that joyful celebration, that can, that can also permeate every area of our heart and life. Now we've come to the end of our sermon series on Nehemiah, so next week... We'll be starting a new sermon series, and I'm very excited about it. We're calling this series Infused, Living a Lifestyle of Worship. To infuse something is to introduce a substance and allow it to soak into and to infiltrate the entire space. Just picture a a tea bag when you drop it into a glass of water. The essence of the tea leaves slowly seeps out and a lot like this this graphic you know you can see it kind of swirling through the water until eventually the flavor of the tea the presence of the tea is indistinguishable from the water because it's it's been infused with that tea and so now the the two substances are indistinguishable the water has become infused with the tea And so it is and so it can be with our lives and worship. We can allow worship to become infused into our life so much so that worship becomes a lifestyle rather than an event. And so starting next week, we're going to explore together what it looks like to expand our definition of worship from, from maybe a small definition that when we think of worship, we think of the songs that we sing on Sunday. But we're going to expand that definition into knowing that it is a heart posture of responsiveness toward God that can be, and we have the opportunity for it to be, infused into every area of our life, into all of our activities. We're really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be fun this fall. So I hope that you'll, I hope that you'll make space and time to to join us for that and just explore that together, infused, starting next week. Today, as we close, I just want to invite you to reflect on what God has done for you. Just reflect on some of the, some of the things in your life. What, what was broken that he has remade? What was torn down that God has built up. Can you think of something that years ago lie in ruin and now it's something that's strong and it's solid because of God's presence in your life?
Those are the parts of our stories. Those are the parts of our stories from which we find the inspiration to celebrate joyfully and to worship with everything inside of us, the God who has gone to great lengths to himself become a part of our story. And these are also the parts of our stories that give us hope when we face new challenges. Because if God has been faithful in my past, then I know that I can trust him to be faithful today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life and even beyond that. That's the hope that we have. As we leave this place today, it's my prayer that just like we sang just just a short time ago, that your heart will continue to sing with that knowledge that God is good. He is good. He is acting on our behalf. He will help us. And he will never let us down because he is good. He's good.